Hi, and welcome back to Unsighted, the internet's least reliable English lit podcast. I'm Chantel. And I'm Amy. And Amy's already trying to get my goat today. I don't know what's up. She's in some sort of mood. It's a new moon or something. Or something. It might also just be, you know, the PTSD from the last two years rearing its ugly head. Yes, because we're talking about Station Eleven today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about a book. But first, we have some important news. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for the theme music. This is our 50th episode. Woo! I can't believe we've been doing this for so long. That's wild. I feel old. I know. Like, do you feel old? I do feel old. I feel like this is a really bizarre book to be talking about today because of the concepts of like memory and time and days of our lives and stuff. But um, let's not think about that. It's our 50th episode. We're celebrating. And we wanted to celebrate by shouting out some of our lovely listeners. So if you follow us on Twitter, you might have seen today that I have asked for the best and worst books that you read in school. And we have some responses from the class. Oh, Would you like from to the hear? class. Yes. I love the class. <laughs> Tell me you were a keener without telling me you were a keener. <laughs> so Words About Books podcast says the worst was Tarzan. Fair. Tarzan's a book? Tarzan is a book. Interesting. It's a book by a very racist person. Yeah, I was going to say. Ben runs their Twitter account, I believe. And he said, even in sixth grade, I was like, I don't know about this one, guys. <laughs> which is great and very true. Yep. Uh, and he said, I don't know about best, but maybe the most influential was Beowulf. What are your thoughts on that, Amy? Walk me through your thought process. I'm going to walk away from this conversation. <laughs> he said, I know what you're going to say, but it got me into Germanic mythology, which got me into mythology in general. Okay. They've been doing a lot of episodes on Norse mythology lately, which is very cool. Fine. We'll allow it for the mythological aspect, but let's just say that we don't all need to read Beowulf to be English majors. I just think it's interesting reading it because like it's based on a story that was oral literature for a really long time. So the entire story is like, this is a story. Oh, plot twist. This is a completely different story now. And plot twist, there's no continuity in the story. And we've just been telling it to each other's kids for like 400 years. So like, an involved version of our podcast. I mean, basically, yeah. yeah. It's like a game of telephone story. Yeah, which was my favorite game to play in school, which is weird because I hate people being near me now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's because I thought I was better at it than I was. I was like, I have great hearing. Reader, she does not. Okay, Um, James Anderson at Unabashed James on Twitter, who runs the Timeline Scavengers podcast with Colin. And follows us on Instagram. What it is, is they're going through every scene of the Marvel Comics universe, you know, like the MCU. Right. In chronological order based on when they're set. And every episode is a scene. <laughs> have you told Zach about this? Uh, you have now. Oh, that's true. Um, Hi, Zach. Hi, Zach. Yeah, uh, their tagline is, this is the podcast specifically designed to last forever. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, we don't have that kind of stamina, so somebody else has to. So if you're looking for a podcast with staying power, <laughs> James Anderson says, my least favorite book I read in school is probably The Power and the Glory by Graham Greene. I've never read that and uh, now it sounds like I never have to. Yeah, I was like, who the, what the heck? I've never even heard of that book. I've never heard of this author. I know. It's a from a British author published in 1940. Okay. Initially published in the United States under the title Labyrinth Ways. It's about a renegade Catholic whiskey priest living in the Mexican 
state of Tabasco. This sounds like a fake book, but it received the Hawthornden Prize British Literary Award and was chosen by Time Magazine as one of the 100 best English novels since 1923. Other books might have made a nameless protagonist work, but I just found it confusing. Oh, so it's a book about a nameless protagonist. So there are other novels with unnamed protagonists. For instance, we have talked about The Time Machine on this very podcast, yeah. in which both the narrator and the protagonist that the narrator is talking about in this frame narrative are unnamed, and he's just called The Traveler, I think. Handmaid's Tale doesn't name Offred, quote, we don't know her real Does name. Does it not? Well, that makes no, sense. No, I don't think so. We do in the TV show. Oh, what's the other one? I'm reading Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation, mm. and the protagonist is just called the biologist. Right. Because they take their names before they go into Area X. Talk about your profession becoming your entire life. <laughs> okay. So that was his least favorite book. What's his favorite book? Favorite book from school? Maybe Island of the Blue Dolphins from way back in elementary school. That's sweet. That really sounds like something I would have been into because I was definitely like a dolphin girl as a kid. Thank you, James. Oh, James also said congrats on 50 episodes. Thank you, James. That's sweet. Thanks. Nate from also Words About Books podcast. So Words About Books podcast technically has commented on this multiple times. They're really trying to get their engagement up. They really want to guest. It's okay, guys. Just come on and guess. <laughs> you're invited. Just pick a book. Just one we preferably have read or you're willing for us to not have read. <laughs> oh, we could cover twice. Twilight. I mean, we could. <laughs> I've never read it or seen the movies. It'll be great. You what? Okay, we'll circle back to that, but moving <laughs> on for now. Nate says Ben loves Catcher in the Rye so much he had to read it three times. I feel like Nate is playing a prank on us and Ben actually doesn't like Catcher in the Rye. So fun fact, there's only two books that I was assigned in school that I didn't read mm -hmm. in all of school. I don't believe that. Well, you better believe it, baby, because it's true. Okay. And one of them was Catcher in the Rye. Fair. Actually, I think that when we started reading at the end of the year with our teacher knowing that we wouldn't have time to finish it. So I was like, I'm not going to put any effort into this. Right. And then he says, you know, I just thought about this today for some reason. I have never finished Dante's Inferno. I was assigned it multiple times and I stopped around the fifth circle and then got back on at the ninth. Well, you missed out because the sixth circle of Dante's Inferno is actually reading Dante's Inferno. <laughs> That's like, Gulliver's Travels is easily one of my favorite books. And I've never read, I think it's like book three, the weird book. Book three, yeah. That nobody reads. I've read it. It's, you didn't miss out on anything. <laughs> no, it's like, it doesn't exist in my collective memory of this novel and it's fine. I love that in Gulliver's Travels, only the first two books are ever covered in adaptations. Mm. They're like, we're not touching the horse thing. Mm -mm. Well, the horse thing's the best part, I think. It's a lot. Thanks, Oh, Nate. he said, what is it, the worst? probably not but it is the one I finished the least amount of times versus the amount of times it was assigned to me how many times was Dante's Inferno assigned to you Nate I've never been assigned Dante's Inferno also never read it yeah I think the book I was assigned the most was probably Gulliver's Travels actually so we had Nate thank you for for coming on on the talk show next up when Harry met movies very fun side note it's uh it's almost September yep I think it will be September by the time this episode comes out 
episode, it's time to start dressing like Billy Crystal in When Harry Met Sally. I understood that reference. When Harry Met Movies said, best Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of Nim. Okay, The Secret of Nim is such a quality movie. I didn't realize the many times that I watched it as a child that it was based on a book, but oh my God, is it ever messed up? I am Francophone. It's about animals. They talk. They wear coats and stuff. It, I promise it's good. Okay. And yeah, I bet it is a good book because it was a really good movie. Worst was probably something like The Silver Chair. Have you ever read The Silver Chair? No. Have you? I also have not. I feel like maybe we're bad English majors. I think we went to a very liberal, liberal arts college. The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. Oh, is this part of the... Uh... The fourth book published in the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay. Is it bad? This is weird. I didn't read the Chronicles of Narnia. I've barely seen the first and second movies. Well, they're good, but like, I feel like kind of by accident because it was just a really on-the-nose Christian allegory, but it was good for other reasons besides that. Right, 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 right. As it be. Um, The Uncanny Robot podcast says, not a book, but we read Occurrence at Owl Creek by Ambrose Bierce, and it's still my all-time favorite story. I like Ambrose Bierce. I would read this. Set during the American Civil War. Yikes. On bikes. It can be found on AmericanLiterature.com. For those of you who feel the need to read it. Uncanny Robot also says there's a 1974 CBS radio mystery theater dramatization of it too. My all-time favorite radio drama. And has linked the episode. That's cool. We don't even need to read it. Man, let's cover that in the next episode. That sounds great. Okay. Every rom-com pod. I like that. Said. Worst, probably The Scarlet Letter. Yeah, fair. Though I'd read it a year or two before it was assigned. Nerd. (laughs) Uh, have to concur with what my mom had written on the last page of her school copy. What a drag. I mean, yes, but you know what was great? Easy A, and that's all that matters. Yes, Easy A is very excellent. The new Mean Girls, although it's not really new anymore. It came out in like yeah. 20... We're dating ourselves. 10 or something. Yeah. Oh my god, that was like 12 years ago. Holy shit. Yeah. What is time and memory? Mm. Okay. Anyway, whatever. I believe that it's a bummer. Easy A also says it's a bummer. Still, I suppose it has historical value and I don't think it shouldn't have been assigned. We're mopping up what you're spilling. Best in university, a professor named Marsha Klotz introduced us to Octavia Butler with Kindred. Yes! Good. Love this for us. We've covered Kindred. And you know who else has covered Kindred is Lit Society. Oh. Which is a podcast I've started binging lately, which is another book podcast. And they had a really good in-depth plot summary and also like some really good analysis of it. Right. And it's a very difficult book to summarize. So Yeah, I did not do it justice. So I'm glad well, someone our else episodes did. are also like half an hour and theirs are like an hour and a half. To we be are in different tax brackets. <laughs> We're in the mini me podcast category. We're in the short commute category. <laughs> but yeah, agree. Octavia Butler's Kindred sounds really amazing. I would like to read it. And the short story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? by Joyce Carol Oates. Hmm, I would read that. Let's add that to the list. Stick it on there. Stick it on the list. You have the list. I don't have the list. I'm going to stick it on the list. Thank you, every rom-com. Who's next? Opinionated Lushes. 
very excellent podcast name. Best was probably Flowers for Algernon. I just really enjoyed it. The only Algernon I know is Algernon from The Importance of Being Earnest. Yeah. But I'm willing to sample more Algernons. Yeah. What a name. Worst was probably Not Wanted on the Voyage. I'm not very religious and some of the book needed a parent form sign because of the subject matter. Interesting. Not Wanted on the Voyage is a book that I accidentally bought. So our bookstore was just sorted by like the class and you just looked up the class in the shelves and then you just bought all the books on that little section of the shelf. Um, And somebody had put Not Wanted on the Voyage in my classes section. Was not part of the syllabus. So I I had that book at one point, didn't read it. And then I was like, I'm never going to read this. Goodbye forever. And sounds like that was a good choice. It is Timothy Finley, though, who wrote The Wars. Interesting. So that that was fun. Thank you, everyone, for commenting. Comment more, and we'll include you in the next podcast episode. Maybe we'll read your recommendations. That could be fun. Yeah, that could be fun. I guess on this 50th episode, because you asked everybody else, I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite and what's your least favorite books? Oh, no, I wasn't prepared. Okay, worst, I'm so sorry, Beck's Goose, but it was Heart of Darkness. Best, I really liked The Handmaid's Tale in high school, which we haven't covered on the podcast, actually. No. I really loved Oryx and Crake, just everything by Margaret Atwood that I had to read in high school, which was The Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake. We didn't have like an extensive Margaret Atwood syllabus or anything. What about you? So my least favorite was The Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, fun times. We love The Pilgrim's Progress. I read the first book and went, fuck this noise. And then I think my favorite is Tom Jones. You do love Tom Jones. Yeah. Tom Jones is your buddy. My partner bought me like a Reader's Digest beautifully bound green copy with like the gold leaves on the outside of, and it's beautiful but I haven't even dared crack open the spine. Well you gotta loosen the binding first is the well, trick. Yeah. And then the spine won't crack. But it's like my display copy and then I have my reading copy which is very well loved. It's the display for display purposes. Yeah. Exactly. So Margaret Atwood. I said Margaret Atwood. That's a natural segue point. Speaking of Canadian speculative fiction, what are we talking about? So today we'll be covering our gem, our sweet little baby, our traumatic experience, (laughs) Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. Yes, we will. When did you first read this? You first read this in undergrad. Yeah, so I read this in my fourth year, I think. You sound really confident about that. Yes, in my fourth year in my Canadian Lit class, which is also when I read Oryx and Crake. Oh, you read it like for school? Yeah. Wow, that's bananas. Bananas. It was my prof's favorite book. So the fact that I'm a keener and read it, you know, super early and can make like conversations about it with him before anybody else did gave me a bit of brownie points. I think that or he really hated me one or the other. Okay, I didn't realize this was his favorite book of that class. So we're going to cover this book. um, But first, let me tell you a bit about uh, Emily St. John Mandel. So Emily is her first name. St. John is her middle name and uh, Mandel is her last name. Like uh, Howie Mandel. Yes, I guess. And Sinjin from Jane Eyre. Also, I guess, but it's her grandmother's maternal last name. Okay, I'll allow it. So anyways, she was born in BC in like roughly 1979. So she's either like a Gen Xer or a millennial, but let's counter in the millennial class because she's a bit too cool to be anywhere else is what I think. I mean, Gen X is a pretty cool generation. Yeah. Don't knock it till you try it. I guess. It's Gen X summer. Fight me about it. So she was mostly homeschooled um, on an island in British Columbia, but she eventually left and like she went to high school and then she left and studied dance 
in Toronto. Was it Denman Island? <sighs> Something like that. I don't have our Wikipedia page open. Or Hornby Island? Because oh, those are the two islands that went into the inspiration for Delano Island. Yes. It's one of those two. Rad. It might be those Rad two. as heck. But yes, so she was born in BC and then she moved to Toronto, you know, not unlike us, moved to Toronto, me, not you. And not unlike one of the characters of this novel. Yes. Right, which you know. She's the staff writer for The Millions, an online magazine in which she wrote an essay called You'll Probably Never Catch Ebola, So Why Is This Disease So Terrifying? Okay. Which I thought was interesting considering her train of The books. subject matter. Yeah. Um, she's written a total of six novels up to date. Station Eleven was her fourth and her first major break. She does not like it being called science fiction. Much like Margaret Atwood. For her, her rationale is there's no fictional technology here. All of this could be real. And oh boy, is it all too real. <laughs> That's a complaint based on a misinterpretation of what science fiction is. And Margaret Atwood has also come around on the definition of science fiction for her novels. But sure, I already called it speculative fiction. So I've, I've played right into her hand. Yeah, but there's not a lot of like science happening either. Like the only weird science is a new flu virus which is not that weird or science or fiction because i do agree that it's more speculative ish now that we think about it than it is science oh okay so i thought speculative fiction was a genre of science fiction but actually wikipedia our most reliable source is saying science fiction is a genre of speculative fiction which typically deals with imaginative or futuristic concepts such as science and technology space exploration time travel blah 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 fine. Okay. It's a bit more of a dystopia if you really think about it. It is. It's dystopian fiction for sure. I have a friend whose name matches the one of the protagonist in the novel and she's doing her whole dissertation on the apocalypse essentially. So I'm not going to go right into the plot summary. I'm going to give you some, a lot of content warnings. If, again, if the pandemic has uprooted your life, please, for the love of God, if you're not able to talk about it yet, you've had a good run. You've been with us for a couple minutes. We appreciate that you've listen to us for 50 episodes, you may skip this one. If you want to keep going, here's what we're going to be talking about. So obviously the pandemic, people dying, dropping like flies, uh, the mishandling of the pandemic, the end of the world, suicide, murder, religious zealots, you know, the whole nine yards. Also rape, but I'll try to stay away from that plot point. But it's in the book in case you want to read it. It's going to be a complicated book to summarize. And a lot of this is because it's kind of written like a play. It has acts. That's so interesting. Everybody that is on the scene, like on on stage, mm-hmm. is encapsulated in these acts. And they're not just moving around. Like she doesn't just throw you around. Everything is super well constructed, like a scene, like an act from a play. That's so interesting because I know you'll get into this, mm-hmm. but it's built all around Shakespeare. Yes. So again, there's multiple intertwining plot lines and I'm not going to do it justice. There is an HBO TV series about it that probably does a better job. If you are in Canada, it's probably on Crave because Crave usually handles HBO stuff. Frick a fresh. <laughs> that's the verbal enough indication of the hand gesture I just made. Yeah, that's true. So the novel's main plot follows a troupe of Shakespearean actors following the downfall of society. They're called the Traveling Symphony and they put on Shakespearean plays with music in the post-apocalyptic world because survival is insufficient, Mm -hmm. which is a line from a Star Trek episode. I like it. But we'll get into all of that. So I think what we need to start off here is, so the play opens with a performance of King Lear in Toronto. Also pronounced as Chirana if you're from there. Or Toronto if you're like a regular person. (laughs) 
And it's being put on by Arthur Leander, an actor. Uh, our main character, Kirsten, is eight years old and plays Cordelia, I believe, in King Lear, which is King Lear's favorite daughter. So Arthur passes away during the performance of King Lear. It's a good thing he wasn't doing a mime performance. Yes, it is a good thing he wasn't doing a mime performance. The novel actually opens and closes with his death, which is kind of, you know, neat little bow. Yeah, it's death at the beginning, death at the end, and then also all through the middle. Yep. He's from, as you mentioned, the fictional Delano Island in British Columbia, gets out of there, goes to school, drops out of school, becomes an actor, becomes famous, has three ex-wives, and one kid. His name is Tyler. He is his second ex-wife's son with him, um, and he will be important. So essentially, Arthur collapses on stage. Javan, who is a former paparazzi turned entertainment journalist turned paramedic, tries to save Arthur because he knew him from a previous life and also because he was trained to be a paramedic and when you save people's lives, that's what you do. Yep. But they're not able to save Arthur. Sad. Arthur dies on stage. Javan is our source into the pandemic. So Javan gets a call from one of his doctor friends, basically telling him like, yo, I don't want you to have like a panic attack about this, but you might need to have a panic attack about this. There's a huge flu going on. It's called the Georgia flu. The governments in Georgia didn't tell us that, you know, the flu was this bad. People are getting it within hours of being like in contact with someone who has it and they're dying within two days. Basically telling him to get out of the city. Yeah. So I don't know if other places had SARS, I'm guessing. Yes. I think it was an epidemic. It was um, mostly in Asia and Toronto. Okay. So being from Ontario, like we had SARS and Jeevan is talking about SARS at the beginning. He's like, okay, well, everyone made such a big deal about SARS and people are saying this Georgia flu thing is going to be serious, but like everyone said SARS was going to be serious too. And then it was like nothing. And his friend is literally like, I told you not to panic about SARS. I'm telling you to panic about this. Yeah, basically. I'm not saying it's nothing. Um, He was saying it's nothing. Like it wasn't nearly as serious as many, many other epidemics, but people did die from it. It wasn't as serious because it was somewhat adequately managed. And its inoculation times are different. But there is a CTV production of a movie, I don't remember what it's called, probably SARS, in which they recount the story of a nurse who's on a bus and she's perfectly fine when she's on the bus and then by the end of her shift, she's she's dead. Yeah, like it was serious for the people who got it, just not a lot of people got it. And I think so it happened when we were fairly young, but it was a very real concern for the people of Toronto. Mm -hmm. It clogged up their hospitals, it made like a lot of things bad, and a fair amount of people died from it and it still remains I think somewhat endemic it sometimes happens in Asia still I think it was big in 2003 for us that was when we had our our outbreak yes okay it was 2003 oh man 2003 was a big year for like bad things things that seemed like they were gonna be really huge world altering events like we had SARS and then a few months later we had the giant blackout that lasted for three days yeah that was fun funny how time is yeah so this novel is heavily influenced by the SARS outbreak, but like worst case Ontario SARS outbreak, like, you know, bad times. So Javon or Javon, depending on how you pronounce things. Or Jeevan, if it's the audiobook that I listen to. Or Jeevan. I don't know. He's a fictional character. I don't know how to pronounce his name. He basically is told like, you need to get out of this city, right? Yeah. And he's all like, well, I can't get out of this city. Like, what am I going to, I have a brother, like who's paraplegic. I can't just freaking leave him here. So as we're hearing about the pandemic through him, about the Georgia flu through him, we're also getting piecemeal parts of what's going on in the rest of the world. So for example, mm-hmm. Jeevan's girlfriend, 
Laura, like she left the theater that they were at where Arthur was having his performance, went home and like doesn't believe Jeevan when he calls her to be like, hey, like you need to go to your mom's house. Like you can't stay in the city. This is bad. She's just not having any of it. And eventually he just stops caring about whether or not she exists anymore. Because he kind of can't afford to care. He can't afford to care. And also she was a real dick. Um, She left as he was performing CPR on Arthur. Wow. Why? And then on like when Javon was coming back home, she was like, can you pick up some milk? As if he hadn't been through like a traumatic experience or anything. What? The people who were at the performance and who were actors and stuff, most of them pass away within three weeks because they all gathered and celebrated Arthur's life after he died. Yes. Social gatherings, super spreader events. It does say the of the people who were at the bar, the longest living person was the bartender who died three weeks later on his way out of the city. Yeah. So Javon spends his last day in the before times stocking up on water and food to bring up to his brother's apartment so they could quarantine together. He's hoarding. He's hoarding. His brother was a military veteran who uh, got injured and he's now a paraplegic and he here I think represents an interesting facet of what happens to the people with disabilities when events like this happen. Yeah because accessibility aids are mostly technological and technology in this end of days scenario of this dystopia basically no longer is. No so they hold up together for about three months the power goes out the internet goes out TV stations stop broadcasting, the water stops running, and they're running out of food. And like he makes the executive decision, Frank is his name, makes the executive decision to commit suicide so that he does not have to live in a world that isn't made for him anymore. It's really sad. It really is. He gives us the very physical aspect of how the end of times isn't good for people with disabilities. And then we later have another character um, whose name is Lily, and she ran out of her antidepressants mm. and they can't find any other antidepressants which is honestly like the thing that's the least believable of this entire story them not being able to find more antidepressants yeah like i'm like mm, i'm pretty sure y'all have some but anyways i don't know about antidepressants compared to like anti-anxiety medication which i was on for a time but imagine like having to go through the apocalypse and then at the same time coming down off a mental health medication yeah because that is hecked already. Yes. Like it's really annoying for a very long time. They talked about her withdrawals and they talked about the brain zaps that she was experiencing and yep. eventually she just walked into the forest and was never seen again. That's actually like a trope. Like that's a convention is, yep. is walking into the forest and it's cross-cultural too, which is really interesting. But that's like our, our other side of the story, you know, our physically abled, but not neurotypical and yeah. how, you know, that affects people like pandemics affects people with disabilities in general. Mm -hmm. So I really want to like take this moment to like praise Emily for covering those really hard topics. And she does talk with our protagonist, Kirsten, about how she doesn't remember a lot of the early years. Like she doesn't remember the trauma from her childhood because she blocked out. So there's a lot of like PTSD stuff also happening uh, within this yep. novel. So it's a lot of interesting perspective because Kirsten was eight when the pandemic happened. And in our current time, she is 28. So like definitely old enough to remember it would have been trauma that stopped her from remembering. Yeah. And that's really common in people with childhood trauma to not remember like a much larger portion of their childhood than they should. Yes. Javon also has a very relatable
relatable reaction. So he's on the streetcar after he's gotten his call from his doctor friend. And he's acutely aware of everyone around him just breathing. And everyone around him touching things. And I remember on like March 13th, Mm -hmm. I took the train to work and we always had packed trains and i remember like i was nose to nose like with one of the poles in the train and i remember Mm -hmm. not wanting to touch it and like putting my face in a my scarf Mm -hmm. so that i wouldn't have to think about it so that's like a really you know memorable scene that i didn't realize i was channeling when i was on the train in 2020 but i think i was yeah so i'm pretty open about my mental health on this podcast i do have obsessive compulsive disorder and I spent like a year or so almost immediately before the pandemic really working on my OCD and like getting it under control and getting my compulsions and tics under control and then the pandemic happened and then everyone noticed (laughs) what I've been noticing forever and one of the things I'm going to add an additional spoiler alert for people like me skip 45 seconds if you want one of the things was somebody posted a video of a person working at a grocery store in Toronto quote clean unquote some grocery baskets by spitting into a cloth and wiping the handles down so I just needed that all to be not happening uh, because my OCD is right back where it was yeah I remember feeling like I could see the germs mm-hmm. like I we cleaned our groceries for two years solid mm-hmm. before I that's how I feel all the time before I finally let up and was like, I can just clean the produce. But on a happier note-ish, uh, Javon also has a realization that he's probably never going to have a cappuccino again. Oh. And he also couldn't stop singing It's the End of the World as We Know It, which I also did. So Javon is like our like relatable character, I think, here. He is a relatable character. He wasn't relatable before the pandemic. <laughs> no, but now he's, he's a trooper. We're not going to touch on him a lot because he's not super plot related, but he does leave his brother's apartment travel on foot, find a wife, and become a doctor in a small town where he helps people. Yeah. So Javon has a good life, all things considered. So how do I want to tackle this? Let's go with Kirsten's story first. So she's part of the traveling symphony. She got with them after her brother and her escaped. So following Arthur's performance, she went, she got sent home. Her brother was home. Her parents, she never saw them again. Um, Her brother and her like hold up for a while. And then eventually they started walking, got out of Canada somewhere in Ohio, I think. And he died from like a tetanus infection, essentially. Stepped on a rusty nail, got an infection, died. Like how? you die i got a cut on my hand that's pretty much all it took back then but yeah then she makes it to the traveling symphony um and they take her on because obviously she was already a shakespeare star so great time and she is one of two living people who know about station 11 yes what is station 11 station 11 is a comic about an extraterrestrial planet satellite colony uh, man-made that was written by arthur's first wife miranda miranda sent arthur two copies copies of the first two comics of Station Eleven. He sent one of the copies to his son, Tyler, and then gave the other one to Kirsten. Yes. We learned that Miranda dies in a on a beach in Malaysia from the flu. Yeah. So she has these comics called Station Eleven and she memorizes them. They're like her favorite thing in the world. She holds on to them forever, only parting with them when she gets to the Museum of Civilization, which is an old airport where she gives one copy to the museum and then keeps one copy 
copy for herself because she wants at least one copy to be safe at all times. Yeah. Her entire plot revolves around finding people who were in the traveling symphony with her. They had gotten separated for, you know, reasons that the apocalypse happens and they're trying to find them. And some of their friends were held hostage and that's when she meets somebody else, which we'll get to later. So if Kirsten was one of the childs in Arthur's life, Tyler was the other one. Tyler is his son whom he fathered with Elizabeth, his second wife. Okay. They were on a plane to America from Israel, which anyways, when the pandemic hit, they find themselves at the airport, which then becomes the Museum of Civilization. And they represent an interesting group of religious zealots is the word we're going to use. Elizabeth does not handle the confinement and general pandemicness of it all and kind of finds refuge in the Bible in a way Mm -hmm. that is quite unhealthy for her and her Mm -hmm. son, who was, albeit a little weird at the beginning anyways. Yeah. In Station Eleven, there's like the people who live on Station Eleven, and then there's also the people who live in the undersea, and they're like the protagonists of Station Eleven's bad guys. But Tyler doesn't see them as bad guys. Ah, I see. They're like the unsung heroes. Yes. So we have Kirsten, who is very much like on board with Doctor Eleven, who's like the protagonist. And we have Tyler, who's very on board with the antagonists, the villains of Station Eleven. He is found before they leave the airport, because they eventually leave the airport because Elizabeth's losing her mind. He's found reciting the Book of Revelations to a plane full of corpses. Very unhealthy. Telling them that everything happens for a reason. And we have this guy operates the museum, I guess. His name is Clark. And he's an old friend of Arthur's, actually. And he goes up to Tyler and he looks at him. He's like, what are you doing? And Tyler's like, oh, well, I'm telling them that everything happens for a reason. The plague is for a reason. And Clark's like, sometimes things just happen. There doesn't need to be a reason. And he tries to, like, talk to Elizabeth about it, but she's having none of it. Um, because she's also lost it a little bit. Um, so they leave and that's that. So one of the big conflicts in the novel is that there's this character, this mythical character, essentially, called the Prophet. Think polygamous cult. Okay. This Prophet person basically demands loyalty from people, thinks women are property, you know, the huge. The huge. And he kidnapped people from the traveling symphony. Oh no. Yeah, which is bad. So as, you know, the novel progresses and Kirsten and her friend August, who's also in the Traveling Symphony, they find out what's going on. They find their friends. Um, The prophet also finds them, tries to bargain with them to figure out kind of the handoff of people and ammunition and, you know. What they're willing to trade for their friends. Yeah. Um, it's a big hostage situation because the prophet thinks he's entitled to everything. So Kirsten's a bit of a bit rough around the edges, you know, like she's been through shit and she's not taking any shit. And the prophet doesn't like that because she's a woman and that's unacceptable. Yes. Always default to misogyny. <laughs> Always default to misogyny. At the end times. Um, so he's, after like, he killed one of their friends um, and injured another one and Kirsten's you know, mad about it, obviously. And she's gotten found in the forest and he's about to kill her, right? And the prophet starts to talk about the undersea. As we know, there's only two copies of Station Eleven in existence. Wait, is it Tyler? Yes, the prophet is Tyler. Oh no. So Kirsten, recognizing the undersea and having a fucking existential crisis, starts to just recite parts of Station Eleven to him, distracting him long enough for one of his underling people following him around to kill him. Oh, good. So they didn't like him either. No. It's pretty tragic, though, because that person then commits suicide afterwards. Oh, no. For, I guess, their own crimes against humanity. So it's fairly sad. But we do learn that Tyler was the prophet this entire time. And everyone's connected. 
So I'm going to try to work you through this weird map. So Kirsten and Arthur worked together on King Lear. Javon was a paparazzi who took a picture of Miranda when she was married to Arthur, then did an interview with Arthur when he was breaking up with his second wife. Clark was like a general friend of theirs. And Tyler's a kid, obviously. Tyler and Kirsten are kind of like fake siblings because Tyler was Arthur's real kid. And then Kirsten played his kid in a play. Yes. And they're foils for each other. Yes. Yes. So it's all like interconnected. Everybody's talking to everyone in some form or another. Clark. It's like poetry. It rhymes. Yes. Clark, <laughs> he was a copywriter and now is a museum curator. So he's kept everything from like Nintendos to IDs to this newspaper that this one guy, Diallo, had started writing. Oh yeah, fine. I remember that. Yeah. Which is interesting because Diallo is the last name, if I remember correctly, in the Book of Negroes. Like, I'm an last name oh and she's a writer oh so i don't know if emily had something to do with that the intertextuality hits again yeah anyways that's me reading into it beside the point but yeah they're all kind of connected clark keeps all this stuff and clark's the one who puts everything together he puts the whole like kirsten was a kid in the play kirsten was a girl who gave the interview in the newspaper clark's like the historian Yes, and he's 90 years old at the end of the book. Aw. So once the prophet Tyler dies, they get to the Museum of Civilization, and Clark puts the pieces together, and he talks with Kirsten, and he's like, this Diallo guy, Francois Diallo, like, talked to me about you and said you were really interested in electricity. So he brings them up to the, you know, former control tower or whatever, where you can see, you know, as far as you, I, the eye can see, points a telescope yonder and tells her, look at those lights over there. Oh, yo. A town had popped up with electricity. So even at the end of all of this, after 20 years of the apocalypse TM, gas went like completely obsolete after three years because it went stale. Running water was working for about a month. Electricity was working for about a week. The internet lasted about a week. After everything else failed, 20 years later, civilization was still finding a way. Life finds a way. Life finds a way. And so does art. Okay, I want to talk about that because I feel like that's a big thing with really the foils, mm-hmm. like the foils of Tyler and Kirsten. They both come from Station Eleven. They both read Station Eleven. They come from Arthur. That's their link. Kirsten goes the direction of this is art. Art is beautiful. Art is enduring. Art gives meaning to our lives even when there's other terrible things happening in the world. And she uses that to create her own art with the Shakespeare and music troupe with the traveling symphony. And that's like, Shakespeare's a really big theme throughout because of the King Lear and the the Shakespeare troupe. So that's really cool. Tyler goes the direction of this book had an ideology. I want to have an ideology. I'm going to turn to religion, not faith. I don't think he turns to faith. No. Because I I believe those are different He turned things. to doctrine. Yes. So he's not like, I'm going to have like a relationship with God. He thinks he is God. He's the prophet. Yeah, he thinks he's God. He's creating his own religion around himself. There, So like, I think that's a really interesting split. Yeah, and also it's interesting because Kirsten and Tyler treat their copies of Station Eleven very differently. How do they treat them? Kirsten's copies are immaculate. She's memorized them, so she doesn't even really need to go back and read them. Tyler has one page. What? He has one page left. Because he destroyed it? They've disintegrated. He didn't take care of them. Huh. The only thing left in his bag that Kirsten gets is one page of Station Eleven. And that sucks for her because she's been 
been spending this whole time going through people's houses that they find like people who have left their houses behind because they died or traveled away or something. Yeah. And looking for other issues of Station Eleven because she wanted more of it and not knowing that it was like this passion project from this one person who spent years on like every couple pages just meticulously painting these huge spreads and making up this world and made like eight copies. Yeah. She thought it was like a book series. Yeah. <laughs> and she's been looking for these other books and she doesn't get them. No. But that's how it be sometimes. It really do be like that sometimes. Yeah. There is one interesting aspect also that I want to talk about because it's a conversation that I actually paused and reread recently two hours ago <laughs> about this guy who gets to the airport and he talks about his very last phone call that he ever made and it was a business call where like they were just saying corporate nonsense of like yeah you know we'll email Nancy uh, we'll circle back on that you know I'll shoot them an email whatever you know the whole workaholic aspect of it all like his last phone call wasn't to his wife or his kid it was a work call and that reminded me a lot of when we all decided like we were all sent home to work from home and how we were just expected to just keep doing keep on keeping keep on. on keeping on and like i love working from home this is not me saying i don't love working from home this is my favorite part of my job yeah but at the beginning it was a very big change and i think we weren't working from home we were at home and working yeah and i think some employers got that and others didn't and this conversation here about like you know business gotta keep businessing is very indicative of what happened i'm gonna make a reference to love actually in love actually they say that when the planes hit the Twin Towers in, on 9-11, none of the phone calls were messages of hate. They were messages of love. They don't mention messages of corporate business, business transaction. Yeah. I'm guessing that didn't happen either. But I think it's interesting the difference between like a sudden crisis and a slow burn crisis. Because a slow burn crisis that you think you're going to have time or you don't know it's happening, you're just trying to like carry on with your life and your life a lot of the time if you're a adult in like modern corporate capitalism revolves around your job yeah so it does make sense that people were like making calls about their jobs instead of making calls to their family rather than if they knew like okay this is the end i need to make my last phone call to my loved ones and tell them goodbye yeah and a lot of what was happening also here is that the governments in the fictional i want to make it clear that it's a fictional republic of georgia here it has nothing to do with the actual yeah. country of georgia they specifically say that like the government hid how bad it really was before i got to north america mm -hmm. and and it's such a clear parallel of like, when I got here, like there were people who were like, it's just a flu. There are still people who are like, it's just a flu. And I remember I had a conversation with Zach, who was on our podcast. Yeah. And I told him, I think this is going to change the way we live our lives forever. Yeah, you did. And he told me, Amy, stop being depressive about this. I can't hear your anxieties about this right now. But we've talked about it since. And he's like, yeah, you were right. Like you knew what was up. I was one of the only people who like was like, I'm very worried about this. I think it's going to be a big deal. I think I think a lot of people who have family in and around China were also like, yes, on board with what was happening. Um, it was just like other people who are like other settlers. Yeah. Who were like, no, it's going to be the same as every other epidemic that's ever happened. Yeah. But it wasn't. Everyone always thinks everything is the end of the world. This is going to be fine. Or like, it's going to be two weeks and it's going to be fine. And here we are almost yeah. three years later. Um, <laughs> But Wild. speaking of the passage of time, uh, about my friend who's writing her PhD about like the apocalypse and whatever, she's also teaching a class about these kinds of novels. She said that it was really useful for her students to read 
books like Station Eleven in the context of their own lived experiences. Yeah, I can see that. And like we, I didn't read it during the pandemic. I read it in 2017, I guess. 2016, knowing how quickly I read. So I didn't have this. The only thing I had was, you know, the Spanish flu and SARS and a bit of H1N1. But none of those were big. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, can you imagine if something like this would happen? And then it happened and I was like, mm, there's this book I read. I read it in 2020, Oof. in March 2020, Oof. at the beginning of March 2020, when this was like still kind of in Wuhan and like starting to come here. Uh, and I had one friend at work who, uh, she's Vietnamese, and her family was like, this is a real thing. It's going to be real big and real bad. And she was like, yeah, hey, um, this is going to be serious, I think. And I was like, I don't know. But then I was reading this, like, on my commutes to and from work as an audiobook. And I was like, man, wouldn't it be absolutely wild? Wouldn't it be crazy if we had, like, a really big pandemic from this pandemic that seems to be starting like in this book. And then we kind of did. Yeah. I feel like I kind of summoned it. I'm sorry, guys. It's it's not just you. I also spoke it into the world. But yeah, I think much like how Margaret Atwood wrote The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Emily St. John Mandel wrote Station Eleven. I think the problem with Canadian, living Canadian in speculative like, fiction writers. Yeah. No, the... <laughs> problem with both Canadian speculative fiction and living at late stage capitalism near the end of the world is that they are very good at predicting what's going to happen. And also we're at the point where it's now all happening, you know? Well, that got dark real quick. Uh, yeah, that got dark real quick. Come back next week when we read Happier Things. Chantel, how did you rate <laughs> this book on a scale of... Oh my goodness. Ooh, this is going to be fun. On a scale of Hamlet to... Oh, Jesus. Twelfth Night. Okay. I would rate this a Macbeth. Mm. And here's why. Because Macbeth is one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. I really, really enjoyed this book. I thought it was really good. I love speculative fiction. I love Hamlet. I love Canadian speculative fiction. It is sad times. Like, Macbeth's not a happy story. We think it's funny. <laughs> Amy and I think it's funny. It's not funny, haha. -ha. It's not funny, haha. -ha. But... If you go back and listen to our Macbeth episode, um, we do think it's pretty funny. This book has funny moments, but I wouldn't say it's a funny book. But it is a fun read if you have the capacity to not be totally thrown for a loop by it right now. Because there's like a million bazillion content warnings. Yeah, I would agree with that. Macbeth is a really good play to use for this, actually. Is that going to be your rating as no, well? No, mine is King Lear. <laughs> okay, well, that's on the nose. It's very on the nose. Explain. So it's King Lear because, well, it's in the play. No, it's in the book. No, it's not why it's like that. So King Lear is inherently very sad. And there is a lot of descent to madness about it all. But I really enjoyed reading it. And Cordelia is one of my front runner names for kids. It's a good one. But it deals with the idea of like your world as you know it ending. I think that really resonates with the novel. So I really like the novel. But man, just going through it again gave me a bit of the sads. Yeah, it definitely carries a different meaning. I think it's going to carry a different personal meaning for people who read it for the first time post-pandemic yeah. versus people who read it for the first time pre-pandemic. But anyways, thank you for joining us on our 50th episode. It's been a longer this one. This was like such a depressing 50th episode. I swear I went into this being like, I'm going to be fun and funny like I was for Unity 1918 and then I wasn't. 
I was sad. But you know what? We here at Uncited Pod capture the entire pantheon of human emotion. We do indeed. And that's what matters. Do you have like one fun thing to leave us with that happened to you this week or something? Ooh, my win for the week? Yeah, what's your win for the week? Leave us on a happy note. I went to physiotherapy for the second time this week. And I got told that I'm doing incredible progress with my ankle. I'm so happy for you. And I got my x-rays back from both hospitals. So I compared them and it's a weird break, but it's okay. So that was my win. Are you going to need to leave for a little while? Are we going to need to say goodbye to Amy temporarily? We'll on on September 9th, Wednesday, see the doctor. We'll see. We'll let you know. Suspense. Tune in next time. Um, My win for the week is last night I went out with a friend, um, which was good, but I've done that before. But what I haven't done before is I really like bats so much. I like really, really like bats. And I saw my first in real life bat yesterday when I was walking home from the bus. Congratulations. Thank you so much. That's good. That's my personal win for the week. That's great. So what's your personal win for the week? Tweet at Unsighted Pod or send us a message on Instagram or like comment with your win for the week. We want to hear them. And also, please give us more recommendations of short stories. We love to see it because it means we don't have to read really, really long novels. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sticking with us for 50 episodes. Uh, And we'll be here for many more, we hope. To 50 more. We hope to see you in two weeks. And as always, we're excited. Unavailable. It's such an in-joke, it's now an out-joke. <laughs> Honestly, though.